morning. We're going to be in Acts chapter 4 this morning. Acts chapter 4, as we continue on uh, in our study of the book of Acts, we continue to look at uh, what kind of church we need to be, what kind of church, uh, what kind of things we need to do as the body of Christ. Uh, we're going to be in Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 32. And I want to give you a heads up. Uh, this text deals a lot with generosity and giving. Ooh. I know, we, uh, <laughs> I, but I do want to give you a heads up because I know the cultural kind of feelings uh, because of a lot of abuse that pastors and churches have, uh, have the way they've abused giving. Um, so I want to give you a heads up that this text deals a lot with generosity. And so we'll be talking about a lot uh, uh, about generosity this morning. But I want to give us kind of two, uh, two points before we get started, two things that I want to bring to your mind. Number one. It's the idea that the truths found in Scripture determine how we think and how we act. Like the truths found in the Word of God need to determine the things that we think and the things that we say. We don't get the, the privilege or the ability to take our cultural ideas, our thinking about what's right, our thinking about what we want to see, and put that into Scripture. We have to, to study Scripture. What we're doing right here in this moment is opening up the Word of God and hearing from Him, seeing what He uh, has for us this morning as we conform our minds and as we conform our lives uh, further into the image of Jesus. And so uh, we're going to open up the Word of God this morning and study what the Word of God has to say to us, um, not what we have to say to the Bible. Uh, and so that's number one. Number two is that if you uh, leave this morning thinking, uh, well, this is just a long sales pitch for the church to get uh, fundraising, then you have sorely missed the point. <laughs> and I hope that that's obvious as we get into the text, um, but don't tune out the passage, don't tune out the sermon thinking this is just one long sales pitch, one long uh, giving pitch, uh, one long fundraising opportunity for the church because that's not at all what the text is talking about and that's not at all uh, what we're going to be doing and seeing this morning from Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 32. That's where we're going to be this morning. It says this, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles, apostles Barnabas, meaning the son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Let me pray for us as we get into the text this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you didn't just leave us stranded as Christians wondering what you want from us. That you didn't, you didn't just leave us stranded on earth uh, without any idea or any inclination or any teaching about what you desire for us as a body of believers, but God, you have given us your word to shape us and mold us and transform us and conform us into the image of Jesus. So, Father, I pray this morning that we would have eyes to see what, you're, what you are teaching us, ears to hear what you're teaching us, and a heart that is ready to apply it to our lives. Father, we love you. We praise you, and it's in the precious, holy name of Jesus that I pray. Amen. A culture matters. Right? Some of you may have uh, love your job. You may have loved your job in the past because you really loved working where you where you worked because the culture was fantastic. Others of you 
may have left a job or may have stayed in a miserable job because the culture at your workplace was terrible. Um, like culture matters a lot when it comes to the productivity of an organization, when it, when it comes to uh, what the organization does and how it operates. Culture matters a ton. There's uh, a fun story, uh, a fun culture uh, at Bridgewater Associates. Bridgewater Associates is one of the uh, most successful hedge funds in the world, one of the largest, most successful hedge funds in the world. And they have a culture of criticism, a culture that, that loves and thrives on a particular criticism, constructive criticism. I'll give you an example. So at Bridgewater Associates, and, and after one of the meetings, uh, led by the billionaire CEO, a manager, mid-level manager, emailed the CEO and said, you get a D minus for your performance at the meeting today. Uh, you were rambling and incoherent, and it was obvious to all of us that you didn't prepare. <laughs> said that to the billionaire CEO, the boss, the owner of the, of the hedge fund. And instead of firing him like 95% of CEOs would do on the spot, uh, instead the CEO, because of their culture of criticism and loving it, took the criticism, and he asked everybody else who was at the meeting to grade him from A to F. And then he received all of their grades, compiled them all together. He ended up getting a failing grade. And then he sent that out to the entire company, every employee in the entire company, and said, I failed at this meeting today. Uh, this, is what, this is how we're learning from it. And this is how we're going to move forward and not fail at meetings in the future. That's their culture in Bridgewater Associates. And that culture of constructive criticism, that culture of, of accepting uh, criticism and not, not spurning from it but accepting it uh, has led them to be one of the most successful uh, hedge funds in the world. Culture matters. So far in the book of Acts, we have seen so many incredible things happen when the church interacts with the surrounding world. Right? We've seen so many incredible things happen when the church goes out and interacts with the city. We see Peter giving these incredible sermons. We see thousands of people coming to know God. We see miracles being performed. We see amazing things happening as the Holy Spirit mobilizes the church out into the city. But what Luke does at the end of chapter 4 is he pauses and he takes us back inside the Christian community to look at the culture. He pauses from telling us what happens outside as the church interacts with the city. And he stops and he shows us what is happening inside the church to give us a look at the culture. And what we see at the end of Acts chapter 4 is that the church in the book of Acts, the church of Jerusalem, has a culture of generosity. This church had a, a profound, incredible culture of generosity. And we see that they had that culture of generosity because the gospel had taken over their lives. Like these are people that have come together and were brought together by the gospel. They had one thing in common. It was the fact that they were saved by Jesus. So they were gripped by the gospel, and that led to a culture of generosity. And so the point for us this morning is this. A church that is gripped by the gospel will be a church that's growing in generosity. A church that has the gospel at the forefront, a church that, that allows the gospel to change everything about them is going to be a church that is growing in their generosity, their willingness to give. I see two things in the text this morning. Number one, we're going to see that we need a culture of generosity. Look with me in verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul and no, uh, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Now, I want to pause for a second. I, I don't know what your experience has been in the past with, with sermons about giving, uh, with lessons about giving, 
And I'll tell you my experience, and I think it's an experience that, that is pretty common for people that have grown up in church. When I was taught about giving, and every time I heard a sermon about giving, every time I heard a lesson on it, I was taught two things, that we need to tithe, we need to give 10% of our money to the church, and then sometimes we need to give a special offering, like an extra special sacrifice um, to God, an extra offering. And that comes out in the way that we talk about giving money to the church, because we talk about giving our tithes and offerings. So I feel like a lot of us, and I, and I, I venture to guess that a lot of us who grew up in church, when we hear sermons about giving, what we automatically assume is that the two points are that we need to uh, give 10% to the church, and that sometimes we might need to give above and beyond that 10%, because that's all that we've ever heard about giving when it comes to giving to the church. But that's not at all what Luke is talking about. And so if we go into the text assuming that a culture of generosity means a culture of people giving 10% to the church and sometimes a little bit extra, then we have sorely missed the point. And if that's all that we think about when we think about generosity, and that's all that we think about when we think about giving to the church, then we are also missing the point of what the word of God has for us. Because Luke isn't talking about tithing. He's not talking about giving a special sacrifice or a special offering. What Luke is talking about in verse 32 is unity. We can see that at the beginning of verse 32. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. This whole congregation, the whole body of believers, were gathered together, and they were of one heart and soul. This is a, a church that is unified. What is at the, the forefront of Luke's mind when he's talking about this culture is it's one that is unified. This is a group of people that we see in Acts chapter 2 come from a variety of backgrounds. Right, this is a group of people, some are Parthians, some are Romans, some, some grew up in, in north uh, of Rome, some grew up south of Jerusalem, some grew up all around the world. Uh, and there's a culture of Christians that all grew up uh, from a variety of different backgrounds. And this is a group of people that varies in ages uh, by a wide margin. This is a group of people that varies in economic, uh, socioeconomic status by a wide margin. This is full of people who are business owners and the small middle class that was uh, available in Rome. And this is a church full of people who are poor and slaves. And this is a, a diverse church, a, a, a church that is full of people with a variety of socioeconomic backgrounds. A church with a, a wide variety of differences. And what we see in verse 32 is that this is a church with one heart and mind. One heart and soul. This is a church that was unified. Because this is a group of people who have all been saved by Jesus. Every single one of them. It didn't matter what their background was. It didn't matter where they grew up. It didn't matter uh, what their socioeconomic status was. It didn't matter what they were good at, what they weren't good at. It didn't matter how they lived their life. These were all people that had one thing in common. It's the fact that they were saved by Jesus Christ. It's the fact that they were all people that encountered the gospel. It's the fact that every single one of them were on the same page and had the same standing because Jesus Christ saved them. So they were all of one heart and one soul. The fact that they were saved by Jesus mattered a whole lot more than whether they were rich or poor. The fact that they were all saved by Jesus mattered a whole lot more than where they came from. It mattered a whole lot more than whether they, uh, uh, how old they were. The fact that they were saved by Jesus is what mattered the most. This is a group of people, a body of believers that were unified in the fact that they were all saved by Christ and they were of one heart and one soul together. And we see that unity play out in their culture of generosity. So we continue in verse 32. 
No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. They had everything in common. I want to give uh, a special clarification to this text, just like I did in uh, Acts chapter 2, because people will take this out of context. Uh, people can argue and say that, uh, that these Christians need to give up everything that they own, need to sell everything, and need to, uh, to live in like a commune, <laughs> right? To, to have everything in common, that there's, just, there's no private property, that everything uh, belongs to everybody who's part of the church. But that's not what we see in Acts chapter 4. Um, that's not what we see in the text, because we, we know if we go on to Acts chapter 5, there were people that were selling properties and keeping half the money for themselves, and, and there, there was a problem with Ananias and Sapphira. We'll get that next week. Um, but the problem wasn't that they kept half the money. Uh, that seemed to be okay, according to the text. That's not what Peter calls that at all. So, so this isn't an indictment on private property. And this isn't, uh, this, this isn't the text saying that we need to give up all of our property and live together in some commune uh, where everything, we hold everything in common and there's, um, there's no private property at all. That's not at all what it's saying. But what, what this is saying is that this is a culture of generosity where there are believers who have resources and they're holding them with an open hand and they say, if you have a need, what's mine is yours. If there's anything that you're struggling with, what's mine is yours. If you're struggling to eat, if you're struggling to, uh, to pay for your rent, if you're struggling to live, I have things that can help you. And I want to meet your needs. It was a church with a, a radical culture of generosity, and that's, that stemmed from their unity with one another. And we see that again in verse 34. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. So what's happening is the church is, is radically generous, where they are giving up of their, their lands, they're giving up their houses, and they're giving those proceeds to the church so the church can meet other people's needs. This is a church that is unified and doesn't want the fact that there are some who are rich and some who are poor to divide the body of believers. This is a church that recognizes how foolish it is for there to be some Christians who are doing well and living life uh, in luxury and other Christians who are struggling to make ends meet and not knowing where the next meal is coming from. Like, what does it say about a church? What does it say about the unity of a church? If, if in the same pew there is somebody who is building up a nest egg and a, a great retirement and money that they can pass on to their kids and somebody who, doesn't, who, who is skipping meals in order to make their rent for the month. What does that say about the unity of the church? What does that say about the unity of the body of believers? What does that say about a church that's supposed to be all on the same standing because we've all been saved by Jesus? If you have one person in the church who is thriving, who is traveling and, and going on vacations and spending all of this money and enjoying life, and on the other side you have somebody who is who is struggling to even get by one more day, who's struggling to pay their, their medical bills, who's struggling to, to, uh, to, to buy meals and buy food. What does that say about the church? Because the church of Jerusalem, they recognized that if they had resources, if they had money, if they had the ability to meet somebody's need, they were going to meet it. They were a unified body of believers who were ready and willing to meet other people's needs because they realized that to be a unified body of believers, their socioeconomic statuses should not divide them. The fact that, that some were rich and some were struggling to survive 
should not divide them. I, I, I think that, that you and I, a lot of times, have bought into this American idea of money. There's, there's this American idea of our money that says that if you don't have it, it's your fault. Right? It's this American idea that says if you're struggling, you need to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It's this, this Western idea that says uh, that if, you're, if you can't pay for meals, if you can't pay for your housing, then you need to figure your life out. I'm not going to help you with that. And we have taken that idea of money, we've taken that concept, we've brought it into the church. To where we don't worry if there's someone in the church who's thriving and there's someone else in the church who is struggling. That doesn't cross our mind. Because if we're thriving, if we have resources, if we have money, we don't, we're not thinking about how to meet other people's needs in the church. We're not thinking about how to, to bail out somebody who's struggling. We're not thinking about how to care for them with our resources. Because at the end of the day, it's their fault that they're struggling. At the end of the day, it's their fault that they can't meet their, meet their own needs. Like a church that has the wrong view of money will say things like, God helps those who help themselves. You know, a church with, with the wrong view of money will have people in the church who are thriving go home and never once consider how to meet other people's needs with their resources. But that wasn't the early church. The early church had a culture of generosity. We see them do three things in verse 34. We see that they, there was not a needy person among them. So we see, number one, that they are recognizing needs. They are looking for the needs in their Christian community. They are going out of their way to try to find the, the needs, the struggles, the hurts in their church. So they're seeing needs. And number two is they're evaluating what they can do. As many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and, uh, and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed uh, to each as any had need. So they're looking at their lands, they're looking at their houses, they're looking at their bank accounts, and they're saying, what can I do to help meet people's needs? Like, I see the needs, I see the hurt, I see the brokenness, now what can I do? And they're selling lands, they're selling houses, they're, they're emptying bank accounts, they're bringing it, to the church to say, meet people's needs with this. So they're seeing needs, they're evaluating what they can do, and then they're acting on it. But they're not, they're not seeing someone who's struggling and say, well, I could downsize, I could sell a field, but that would put strain on me, and it's really their fault anyways. They're not doing that. They're evaluating how they can help, and then they're doing it. They're evaluating how they can give, how they can serve people with their money, and they're acting on it. That's what's happening in the early church, this culture of generosity. We need to be a people. We need to be a church full of people that are seeing the needs in our body, and we are more than willing to meet those needs if we have the capability to do so. I, I want to back up and say that this isn't, um, this isn't, Luke saying that we need to bail out people who aren't who aren't uh, who aren't trying to earn money, or people that aren't people who are in, inherently being lazy. Because I know you guys probably heard me say uh, earlier, uh, 
this indictment on American concept of money. Uh, we see later on Paul in one of his letters to the Thessalonians. He says um, that if someone's not working, if somebody's not putting in effort, uh, then don't give to them. Don't, don't help them. Um, but what's, what we see here in the, the book of Acts is Luke pointing out the people who are struggling in the church, and he's saying, everyone in the church is more than willing to help meet their needs. It's a church of people that have their resources, their money out with an open hand, being more than willing to help. It's a church of people that don't see money as an object or an achievement. It's a church of people who are more than willing to see money as a tool to be leveraged for kingdom advancement. It's not a group of people that see this nest egg or retirement or, uh, or an inheritance as something that is the ultimate achievement in life. It's somebody who realizes that everything that we've been given by God is a tool to be used for the kingdom of God. So they look at their stuff and they say, how can I use this to meet people's needs? And then they go and they meet people's needs. John Wesley was a prominent pastor in England during uh, a time of a revival there. Uh, he wrote a lot of books, and, and in his day, he sold what would now be worth about $10 million worth of books. But John Wesley died penniless. Because John Wesley, as he went around England, as he ran around the countryside, he was known for giving the money that he made from his books, he was known for giving it to people who were struggling in the church. He was known for giving it to people who couldn't make ends meet. He was known for giving it to orphanages, people who were, who were hurting. John Wesley realized that we need to hold our resources with an open hand, and when he saw needs, he evaluated his capacity to meet those needs, and then he acted on it, and he met people's needs. He leveraged his, his money as a tool for kingdom advancement. We see in verse 36 another guy a guy that Luke is introducing us to, a guy who will play a prominent role later on in the book of Acts, but he's, Luke is introducing him here as a perfect example of what's going on in this uh, church in Jerusalem, as this perfect example of someone who is contributing to this culture of generosity. Verse 36, it says, Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, what did he do? He sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So here's a guy who, who's had his whole life changed by the gospel, who has been saved by Jesus, and he sees the needs of people in the church, and he evaluates what he has. He says, I have this field. And we aren't told that he has a plethora of fields, that he's just selling one of them to help people out. Like we're, not, we're not told that he had an extra field that he decided to give away. We, don't, we have no idea what his resources are, but we know that we, he has evaluated what he had, and he says, I have this field, and the best use of this field for the kingdom of God is for me to sell it and to give the resources to the church to meet people's needs. He saw the need, he evaluated what he had, and then he acted on it. We need to be a church with a culture of generosity. We need to be a church full of people who are willing to look at what we have, to will, willing to look at our resources, look at our money, look at our possessions, and to weigh them against what matters forever and begin to meet people's needs today. We need to be a church full of people that recognize that we can't take our money with us when we die. John Wesley is not missing out on anything because he died penniless. 
We, we cannot be people who carry along with us or take along with us anything that we have earned or achieved in this life. And we can then instead use that money to further the kingdom of God and to meet people's needs today. We need to be a church with a culture of generosity. The second thing that we see in the text is that the gospel, the gospel creates that culture. Not sheer willpower, not, not just a decision to, be, uh, to think differently with our money, uh, but the gospel creates that culture. Verse 33, it was with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Sandwiched in the middle of this account of the generosity of the church, this culture of generosity that the, the early church exhibited, is this, uh, this interesting verse about the apostles with great power presenting the resurrection. And this is the apostles presenting the gospel, constantly, repeatedly proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, that there is salvation found in Jesus. And it says there was gr great grace was upon them all. Now this isn't like Acts chapter 2, in the end of Acts chapter 2, when it says that they had favor with other people. Th there's no reference here to other people. There's no reference to, being, uh, to this being an external act with uh, the surrounding community. What this is referring to is the grace of God. God's grace was upon every single one of them. God was moving and active in the middle of this community by the preaching and the proclamation of the gospel. So this is a group of people, a body of believers who have had the grace of God come upon them, who are gripped by the gospel. This is a group of believers who, who have experienced salvation that comes from Jesus Christ and that that has changed everything about them. This is a group of people who recognize that they were sinners before God. That they were broken and in desperate need of a Savior. And this is a group of people who recognize that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came and died on a cross for them. And that he rose again from the grave so they could have a restored relationship with God. And it didn't matter what their background was. It didn't matter what they'd done before. It didn't matter the good and the bad in their lives. What mattered was the fact that every single one of them came to know salvation that comes from Jesus. And so every single one of them were gripped by that gospel message. And it began to change everything about them. And that includes the way they thought about money. And it changed 100% of them, and that includes the way they thought about their resources. No longer did they see their resources as something to be gained. No longer did they see money as this ultimate achievement. No longer did they see rich people as the success stories that they wanted to follow. Now they viewed their resources as a tool for kingdom advancement. Instead of asking, how much can I gain? Instead of asking, how much can I put away? Instead of asking, how much can I save and invest? They began asking, how many needs can I meet with what God has given me today? We need to be a church that is gripped by the gospel and allows the gospel to change everything about us, including the way that we think about our resources. And we need to be a church where there are no needs among us if we can do something about it. We need to be a church that meets the needs of hurting and broken Christians across the country and across the world if we can do something about it. 
We need to be a church that even going beyond the beyond our Christian community, that can begin to meet the needs of the people in our community if we can do something about it. Because we need to be a church full of people that holds our resources with an open hand and begins to ask the question, how can we meet people's needs with this today? How can we expand and advance the kingdom of God with this today? This is not saying that you can't invest. This isn't saying that it's wrong to buy things. This isn't saying that it's wrong to travel and to enjoy life. Those are all gifts from God. But this is a whole different frame of thinking about our money. This is a frame of thinking that says that our money is a tool, not an object, to be gained. That we need to begin to meet people's needs with this. We need to have a culture of generosity. Because if we are people that are gripped by the gospel... That's going to change everything about us. And we're going to begin to change the way that we think about money. In just a moment, we're going to sing. There are some of you here this morning who may have never actually been gripped by the gospel. You've never placed your faith in Jesus for eternal life. You may have heard the gospel. You may have grown up in church. You may have heard the the word of God preached time and time again, but you have never submitted to Jesus Christ as Lord. You've never allowed the gospel to change everything about you. You've never been gripped by the gospel this morning. You have the opportunity to do just that. As we sing, I'm going to be standing right here. If you're here and you would say that you've never been gripped by the gospel, but you want to place your faith in Jesus for the very first time, come talk to me. I would love to tell you more about what it means to follow Jesus. For the rest of us, we need to be people that think correctly about our money. We need to have a culture of generosity. So we're going to take a moment, and don't get up and sing right away. Take a moment and and evaluate how you think about your money. Evaluate how you think about resources. And and ask yourself if you're contributing to this culture of generosity. Ask yourself if, if you see yourself more as Barnabas or you see yourself more as, as some other, uh, as the, the typical American Christian who wants to hoard up and keep and take resources instead of giving and meeting needs. So take a moment, evaluate how you think about your money, how you think about your resources, and then ask God to continue to shape and mold your mind so that you think rightly about our resources. So that we can have a culture of generosity that is meeting people's needs and is displaying the gospel the way that we live, and the way that we act. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, you gave us your own son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross. And you have given us so much in this life. The, the privilege of being born in the United States, the privilege of living in uh, the wealthiest country in world history, and on top of that, currently living in a very wealthy portion of a wealthy state and the wealthiest country in world history. Father, you've given us so much. I pray that we would use it in a way that glorifies and honors you. Pray that we would be a people with a a culture of generosity who who are actively looking for needs 
that need to be met. A, a, a culture, a church of people that, that recognizes where there's hurt and where there's brokenness in our midst and that we would go out of our way to meet those needs. That we wouldn't be a church that is, that is comfortable with, their people, uh, with there being people who are struggling and can't make ends meet worshiping alongside us, but God, that we would be a people who are united and are willing to meet people's needs. Father, give us eyes to see what you see. Give us a willingness to do what you're calling us to do. Grip us with the gospel and allow that to propel us in a radical generosity in everything that we do. We love you and we praise you. It's in the precious, holy name of Jesus that we